0: I would have thought you'd have sent your kids up chimneys or stuff to teach them a sense of responsibility. I can't believe you're allowing them to sit and play the PlayStation for two days. What in the hell have I just walked into?
1: Have you seen him? He's taller than me. He's <laughs> about three. As you walked in, you hear John's putting the children up chimneys. <laughs> That's not a for anything either. <laughs> Good morning, Vietnam! I love the smell of red in the morning.
2: Welcome everybody to the Movie Scramble podcast. I am your master of ceremonies and I am very, very hungover, so please bear with me. If you don't know my name by now, it's Thomas and I am joined by always the lovely John. How are you?
1: Oh, fine. I'm very well, thank you. Um, You sounded
2: very surprised there. That was calling you lovely.
1: Yes, that and uh, I usually get uh, called upon last, being the elder statesman and everything, but I am very well. I'm very sober, um, but... You know, looking forward to the weekend and obviously looking forward to our discussion as well.
2: On tonight's podcast, or this morning's podcast, depends what time you listen to it at, we are going to be reviewing Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Now, if you haven't seen it, don't worry, we're not going to spoil it. We'll tell you some bits about it, but we won't spoil any major plot points. The story is written and directed, of course, by Quentin Tarantino. The film starred Leonardo DiCaprio as washed-up actor Rick Dalton, and his faithful stuntman, Cliff Booth, played by Brad Pitt. Rick is trying to get his career back on track. He's scared that he's basically done in Hollywood. Basically fearful of his career being over. Whereas Cliff, just kind of, gets on my life. Parallel to his story is Sharon Tate, played by Margot Robbie. Although the film doesn't have much of a plot, it's always kind of leading up to this eventuality. And because of that, it's very, very engaging and at times gripping. I thought this film was absolutely outstanding. For me, it's a potential film of the year. What did you guys think? I
1: thought that uh, Tarantino was at his best here. Uh, for me, it may well be the best Tarantino film that I've seen, which is a bit of a statement. That is bold. Uh, I've, I've enjoyed a lot of his stuff, but I like the fact that he is now pretty much done every genre movie that he wants to do and now he's actually just focusing on Hollywood in its entirety and bas- and spending a bit of time looking at the sort of stuff that inspired him back in the day and obviously 1969 was sort of a pivotal year uh, in terms of obviously the Sharon Tate stuff uh, the end of the sort of the hippie dream Altamont it was also the time when uh, a lot of the new generation of directors come in so you were talking about a sort of new uh, Hollywood cinema of the studio system and all this sort of stuff as well and the film really reflects that over the meandering three hours you are right it's a, a very loose film there's not much in the way of plot it's almost like a, a day in the life idea obviously spent over a couple of days and then there's a, a gap and then there's uh, another day uh, which forms the third act but I just thought it was magnificent I loved it every single moment of it. I love the fact that it reflected the fact that the the idea that it was such a changing period and there was so much in the go because before the first probably the first hour and three quarters two hours you get a constant soundtrack whether it be the radio whether it be adverts music there's always something on the go and it just sort of adds to the sort of kinetic energy of the whole the whole piece. I just thought fantastic movie absolutely brilliant
0: yeah no i completely agree i thought it was like a love letter to all of tarantino's you know favorite style of styles of cinema or genres of cinema clear inspiration from you know Sergio Leone even down to the the title which interestingly I believe he wanted to call *Inglorious Bastards Once Upon a Time in Nazi-occupied France but for whatever reason that didn't go ahead Um, and now this is the the title of, of this film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood I thought the the chemistry if you will between Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio was was wonderful I feel like I've kind of not noticed Brad Pitt that much in terms of he's always kind of flown under the radar. And I've kind of I've never really thought of him as a sort of serious actor in inverted commas, but he was outstanding in this film. Like he, you know, a whole range of different emotions and his career is dependent on um Leonardo DiCaprio's career, which obviously has kind of um gone down the skids. And it's it's just one of those films where it does, it kind of meanders along nicely, almost like a sort of, you know, horse trotting along in a western. You're kind of thinking, where is this going? Because at the periphery of all this, there is the sort of shadow of, you know, they're living next door to Sharon Tate, and we all know how that ended, and, you know, Brad Pitt's, you know, sort of his character Cliff Booth is sort of involved with these kind of hippie girls who are living in a film set well who do we know in history that we're a bunch of kind of hippies or family living together in this sort of isolated area so we all know that it's building towards this point but you're just never quite sure how it's going to happen because there is so much focus on Leo DiCaprio's character while he's having a sort of breakdown trying to make his way back into Hollywood and in typical Tarantino fashion you know lots of humor Lots of sort of nods to different styles of cinema um, and lots of nods to his own um, films as well. I'm pretty sure one of the film posters that flashed up at one point said the director was Antonio margaretti, which of course was Eli Roth's fake Italian name in, in Glorious Bastards as well. Um, I just loved it. There was just so much in it. It's, it's so rich with content that you could probably watch it five or six times and find something else to love about it every time.
2: Yeah, and as you say, as well regarding that type of idea, it's kind of like moseying on. mm mm-hmm. It's you've got DiCaprio uh, his character Rick Dalton, who's known for kind a TV cowboy in the fifties, and now he's kind of getting to the kind of twilight of his career. He's a bit kind of feeling feeling that like he's washed up. He's a has been gets another chance, but he's playing a cowboy again, albeit a different kind of western. Mm-hmm. It does really mirror the character's career. He is the kind of gunslinger going out for like one last ride type thing, you know. Yeah. Um, oh, that's a
0: really beautiful way
2: of putting it actually. Yeah, I mean and the acting in the film is uh, DiCaprio is absolutely incredible, as he usually is. But Tarantino gets a certain, uh, just a certain kind of vibe off him. A certain it, it eventually gets to get a certain type of emotion that DiCaprio got it from him from him and Django Unchained. Very different roof. And here again he kinda of taps into something that we don't see any other director tap into. And Decafre obviously have a very close relationship in terms of their movies. Tarantino, as a director, has the ability to just dig deep into an actor and get something we don't usually see. And mentioning kind of Brad Pitt, as you say, it's, he's kind of disappeared from Hollywood and big movies and stuff like that. For me, this was his best performance since Fight Club.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Well, in saying that, I really enjoyed him and in Inglorious Bastards as well.
2: I did as well, but I don't, there was something about him in that that just kind of, the point of Brad Pitt being in it was, yeah. oh, it's Brad Pitt in a Tarantino film, whereas yeah. this time it was like, no, this is a different performance, this is something else. It's funny because we're sitting watching it and it's like, Brad Pitt's looking a bit Oh, he's
0: not a young man anymore. Then he
2: took his top off, I'm like, oh, fuck off.
0: I was just about <laughs> to say that, see when he t- took his shirt off, people actually gasped, in the cinema, I think there was this sort of expectation that there's no way a you know, 55-year-old or whatever he is, Brad Pitt, could have this absolutely you know, sun-kissed pecs and rippling muscles and then the shirt came off and it was like, huh, he looks better than most of the 20-year-olds on turn in the cinema, so.
2: <laughs> Do you know what really upset me? I think I might have mentioned this, but Brad Pitt was younger in Fight Club than I am now and that really bothers me. I don't know why.
0: Are you not in peak physical condition?
2: Yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> 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 this is it. This is the peak. <laughs> <laughs> but so, I, mean, I said DiCaprio and Brad Pitt in that's two of the best performances. I mean, I've actually seen them in general.
0: Just the chemistry between them was really, really natural and, and fun. And there was, you know, lots of humor and actual, you know, a lot of kind of genuine emotion between them as well. You know, two people who, as far as their characters are concerned, they've sort of um gone through their entire careers. Together, um, you know, Brad Pitt playing the slightly sort of, you know, he is quite good at playing the dumb fuck at times. And that kind of was how his character was. Um, whereas obviously DiCaprio's character was just so focused on, you know, career and wanting to be, you know, what he was at his peak. Um, but no, the chemistry between them was, was great. You genuinely did believe that they'd spent their entire careers together.
2: Mm-hmm. And then obviously you've got Margot Robbie as Shan Tate. And I know there was some kind of controversy, manufacturing controversy. Mm. But the fact that our character didn't have many lines in the film.
0: Her character's it's... on the periphery though. It's yeah. literally just a it's sheer coincidence that her character moves in next door to Rick Dalton. That that's my answer to that. But as you say, I think the controversy was manufactured.
2: Yeah, but it's not just that as well. A lot of the scenes she's in, she's in the scenes herself. Mm-hmm. You know, she's supposed to be walking down the street talking to herself. And <laughs> Tarantino you know, really does objectify her in a way that is done, I felt, with a kind of affection.
0: Yeah, so she's, sexualized she, she's like... Goddess like. Like she's shot in this, she's always shot in kind of, you know, bright sunlight. So there is this sort of angelic glow about her hair and her skin and what she's wearing. She is, she's absolutely goddess like. This is very much a tribute to her, not sort of cashing in on what happened for the sake of making a film. She is, I mean, Margot Robbie obviously is gorgeous but the way he you know shoots her and the 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 lighting and just you know the way the hair's flowing and everything she is she's just goddess like so I, i i thought it was a really nice kind of portrayal
1: yeah well what i took from that was the fact that she came across being a bit like a almost like a disney princess and that kind of played into the whole once upon a time aspect. Mm-hmm. It was almost like a, a fairy tale, as in what, as you're saying, she she floats everywhere and she's always happy and contented and she takes a lot of pleasure from the fact it's just seeing herself on the screen and just mm-hmm. enjoying it. Which obviously mirrored Rick Dalton's career, which wasn't something that people would sort of go and just enjoy for the sake of it. He wouldn't go and watch one of his own films and uh, enjoy it in the way that she did because of the kind of opposite ends of the spectrum now he's almost on the way down while she's uh, having an almost effortless rise obviously yeah. it's just small parts and things like that at the moment but it's one it's a career that's got potential whereas you've got the, the likes of uh dicaprio playing a guy who not quite on the skids but he's he's not getting the parts he's villain of the week i think in a lot of things which is it's a bit of a shame for him and everything. And you, and you do actually feel for him. I think, uh, like you mentioned earlier, the the performance that DiCaprio gave, it seems to be that what he's done here is he's shown a certain amount of vulnerability. When he speaks at first, and at the very first scene, where you see Rick Dalton, he's sitting down having the meeting, the agent who's trying to get him into uh, different pictures, and he's stuttering and he's stumbling, and he's not the performer that you see on screen he's more of a a real person he's got vulnerabilities he's he's very unsure of himself he's actually quite meek as well and that doesn't come across as being sort of a false sort of hollywood meekness so you know, you know i just do what i can he actually seems very nervous and he, he, it's that's what kind of made the performance for me but that performance itself was relatively large in terms of its scope which meant the Brad Pitt with his easy going man and everything was a wee bit to the side. So it looked as if the DiCaprio performance was the sort of major one from the film. And initially you're thinking that, but the more you think about it, you're thinking, yeah, Brad Pitt did actually. <laughs> he contributed a whole lot to that uh, whole, the, the buddy relationship and the picture in general.
2: Yeah. Superb. Yeah. I mean, you basically got kind of like Brad Pitt's character's a stuntman, uh, but he's more than a stuntman to Rick. He is clearly his closest friend and his personal assistant he's driver he can't really get on in life without him he owes so much to him to the sense that he's like a, a crutch in a way but it's very affectionate you know there's like
0: yeah there's no resentment because like obviously they show you you know rick Dalton's house and it's you know your typical sort of you know late 60s Hollywood Hills house and then they um, focus on Cliff going home one night and he's living in some manky ass trailer um, in the middle of nowhere and you know there's dog food like ingrained on the floor and he's probably sleeping on a sofa and stuff like that but there's no hint that there's any bitterness in the relationship between them it's just like yeah you know he's got this trajectory, and as a result, he has you know this house and whatever, and and he that, and he was quite comfortable with, with where he was in life, I think, which was quite an interesting um, dynamic because there there was never any sense that they had any you know they had anything other than sort of good feeling towards each other. Yeah,
2: it's got that kind of cautionary tale of fame as well. When you've got like uh, the the well known actor in Rick Dalton compared to the the stuntman, mm-hmm. the, you know the kind of unsung hero of film. And Cliff, but Cliff seems very quite happy in his life. Lives in the trailer, as you said, just him and his dog. It's quite a a humble lifestyle. But even about these letters to Rick, I enjoy I enjoy watching your house for you. Mm-hmm. I enjoy doing yeah. stuff for you. Whereas Rick is always chasing that fame, chasing that validation and that self worth. Cliff doesn't need it. He kind yeah. of back and he looks back and his kind of memories and reminisces the parts of the film, even stuff he's done that's kind of messed up. It does so with a kind of nostalgic um, affection
0: oh yeah Definitely.
1: well supposedly it wasn't really explored in the film but apparently he came from a sort of a combat background and that's where he learned a lot of his skills and a lot of his fighting um so with him actually being uh, a hollywood stuntman it's like almost like it's just a very, very contented existence for him it's something that he just he doesn't. He doesn't need anything else. He's been through a hell of a lot of life experiences, and he's just enjoying what he's doing just now as a fifty-year-old man with impeccable pecs.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting as well because I mean, there's a few comments I've been seeing in reviews where people think it's been Tarantino's most self-indulgent film. I never thought this film was self-indulgent. I thought it was very it unapologetically Tarantino.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I think, like, glorious, bastards, death-proof, hatefully they were self-indulgent in points. Tarantino is known for this, he's guilty of doing it. I didn't get that here. I didn't think it was.
0: No, I thought this was a genuine like, just sort of you know, overview, like look at this era of, of cinema, look what they were doing, look at the types of stock characters they had, look at the, the things they had on TV, look at the lifestyle these people led, you know look at the struggles of this guy trying to get his career off the ground. I thought it was a very sort of generous overview of that era and the sort of socio-political context obviously kind of as I say on the periphery but to me yeah it felt like a sort of love letter to to that time and that type of cinema and I think he was just wanting to share his enjoyment of that particular genre or whatever with maybe you know younger audiences or maybe audiences who haven't seen that type of film in a wee while I don't I don't think it's self-indulgent at all
2: no I mean it's, it's just it's a love letter to that golden age of Hollywood it's a glorification of sharon tate
0: mm-hmm. you
2: know you can you can tell that tarantino is absolutely in love with her the way he kind of frames the shots of margot robbie and um, tracks the camera and that uh, he just he wants you to fall in love with his character who just, as you said floats through the entire film
0: there's the scene as well where you know she's lying in bed you know looking like a bond girl her skin is you know beautifully sun-kissed and the the sheet just sort of barely covers her and there's no point to that scene because she literally is just sleeping and it doesn't lead to anywhere or whatever but it, it is it's just you know showcasing her and her beauty and you know he's you know very clearly in love with her or the idea of her um because she was sort of known for playing a certain type of character as well but it, yeah it very much was you know sort of you know, appreciating her, I, I never felt it was disrespectful or in any way sort of abusive towards her her memory. I thought it was, you know, if you're as portrayals go, you couldn't ask for much better.
2: Yeah, it's almost like kind of like showing like Hallie's innocence before mm-hmm. it was lost.
0: Yeah, she's like the last peace isn't she before you know it was, it was the free love movement came to an end you know america was involved in more and more wars abroad she is that sort of last piece of the sort of the golden age isn't she
1: uh he did have have his usual obsession with feet though which was yes. there's a lot of
0: feet in this so they much feet, feet as
1: well i suppose it's part of the uh the sandal wearing hippies kind of idea as I well i wish they were wearing yeah, sandals that was the excuse <laughs> Yeah, but no. Um, I would thoroughly recommend this film to anybody, Tarantino fan or not. Yeah, it's definitely
2: one to see. Yeah, and it's that way as we mentioned earlier. There's not much to be like in a kind of typical standard plot, but it's just built on themes, and these mm-hmm. themes build and build and build. Yeah, it's a recommend from me as well.
0: Yeah, and for me, absolutely.
2: Last night we watched a Rick Dalton double feature. All <laughs> <on> the shooting. <laughs> I love that stuff, you know, the killing. A lot of killing. We're out of discussion now day, and we're thinking about how do we link this in, and we could talk about our favourite Tarantino films, favourite scenes, but we thought the best way to kind of just deal with this would be to look at our top three Tarantino moments.
0: I think this is one of my favourite sort of scenes or movie moments, like, of all time. I've seen this film more times than I actually care to count. It's the opening scene from *Inglorious Bastards where Colonel Hans Landa, played by Christoph Waltz, turns up at the French farm of Monsieur Lepidite and basically there's one of the most intense conversations i think i've ever witnessed obviously as i said earlier and um, the film starts off with this you know split into chapters and this is chapter one which is once upon a time in nazi occupied france and as the ss drive up to this farm there's this sort of flamenco version of the going on in the background and christoph waltz who you know where has he been all my life he just effortlessly swaps between so many languages during this film and interestingly tarantino said that once he'd written the part of hans lander he thought it was unplayable because there was going to be a lot of um multilingual requirements but christoph Waltz is just incredible so he goes into the farm and you know there's a lot of posturing and sort of peacocking between himself and uh, monsieur le Piedit. and they're sitting at the table in the kitchen Uh, Hans Landa whips out this ridiculous oversized pipe as if to emphasise the pissing contest element of this and he speaks in French they chat away and then he just goes I'm going to swap into English and he slowly sort of really teases out this metaphor of a rat being in your house and the worst part is that as he goes along with you know you wouldn't welcome a rat into your house, they're known to spread disease blah 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 you're actually sitting there going no you wouldn't you wouldn't let a rat into your house, that's right. And then you're like, no, no, I can't agree with him because, you know, he's sitting there with the skull and crossbones and the stripes on his shoulders and all the rest of it. Cap peaked at a jaunty angle. But he's so mesmerising as a character, but straight away the uniform is the, you know, the visual sort of signifier that you're not supposed to be on side with this man, but he is so rich and charismatic and there's so many layers there already you know established by as I say fantastic Christoph Waltz, and there's this incredibly tense standoff where the actor playing Monsieur lepidite is absolutely dripping in sweat like his shirt is soaked through because he's obviously hiding Jews under the, the floorboard um, and that's what Hans Landa is there to establish because he is the Jew hunter and the conversation goes on. They swap back and forward from French to English before, obviously, it erupts into to violence. But as openings go, as a film, my God, I was rooted to the seat. It was incredible. So that is my top pick. And honestly, it could be one of my favourite films of all time. I absolutely love it. You can practically smell the sweat in that scene. It's just it's so intense. I loved it. Uh,
1: my first pick is The House of Blue Leaves scene from Kill Bill Volume 1. This uh, The House of Blue Leaves is the sort of headquarter for the Crazy 88 and um, Ora Nishi, the leader of them. And what we have is the bride turns up in order to uh, confront her. Um, it's all a very convoluted story, let's face it. Uh, it's basically a, a, a two-movie revenge flick. So she turns up and uh, after a bit of verbal play, they uh, basically start to fight. Now she doesn't just fight one, she fights everybody that's there and then she fights all the reinforcements that come in as well. It is a beautifully pieced, uh, beautifully choreographed piece of work I should say. Uh, it's just fantastic and when just when you think it can't get any better she plucks out a guy's eye and it goes into black and white and it just goes mental from there, it just goes absolutely off the chart. It really helped the fact of I went into black and white as well because it made such a difference that you weren't seeing all the, the red fake blood splattering everywhere. It actually gave a, an extra extra sense of tension and I just thought it was a magnificent piece of work. And it's obviously the centerpiece of the the first volume and it works so well and it, it it was good, like, uh, as you were talking about in Glorious Bastards there, uh, the the scene was right at the very start, and the rest of the film had trouble living up to it, whereas this one is towards, it's about two-thirds of the way into the film, and it, it really works because there's a whole build-up to that. You've got to know a lot of the characters. Uh, you know the dynamic between them as well, and because of that, it just it plays out brilliantly and of course it ends with a sort of a rooftop battle as well and there's a snowy landscape and everything and the the beautiful panpipe music playing and all that which is just amazing I don't know something about that music it reminds me of Ski Sunday and things like that for all these skiing programs that used to be on and uh, that music all the panpipe stuff just reminds me of that for some bizarre reason there'll be my therapist and I'll get to that at some point but probably (laughs) not for the next couple of weeks so yeah that's my first choice.
2: Referring to the black and white but you're right, it really does kind of add this kind of artistic mm-hmm. um, tint to it. But the reason you probably know there's some black and white is just to get around the sensor.
1: Yes. Yeah, the, there was a Japanese version of Kill Bill Volume 1 where it was all in colour uh, for the whole scene and it doesn't have the same
2: impact. Mm-hmm.
0: Sorry, what do you mean for the sensor?
2: Basically, um, the sensors wouldn't have given that an R rating if there was that much blood in the film. yeah, But by putting it in black and white, it doesn't count.
0: I mean, we all still know it's blood, right? So...
2: Yeah. It was the same with From Duskled Dawn. The reason the vampires' blood are all is green.
0: Mm-hmm. It's just rid of the sensor. Yeah, no, I kind of I figured that. I didn't realise that was... I mean, is that still, I, I thought From Dustled Dawn was kind of older,
2: yeah. maybe,
0: but, I, you know...
2: Yeah, no, it's, it's so ridiculous.
0: Long? Okay, okay. It's ridiculous. Sorry, John. Are you drinking milk?
2: Yes. <laughs> Give them strong bones.
0: <laughs> That's why you're so dashing and your hair's so thick. Cause you just drink milk <laughs> out the carton.
1: Yeah, I'm just thick. I'm <laughs> <everything>, <laughs> not just my hair. <laughs>
0: I'm loving this. Is this like a... and um, now that I can see you now, because you finally appeared in my suite. Is this like a muscle fit sweater you've got on as well? What is going on?
1: I'm wearing <laughs> a black t-shirt for
0: fuck's sake.
2: <laughs> <laughs> muscle so do you fit. In and just take it off.
1: <laughs> no, I don't want you, you. You don't want the podcast to be ending with the sound of retching. <laughs> You're so
0: up. hard on yourself.
2: Oh, no way.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, I knew somebody would get a penis joke in eventually.
2: I'm going to go a bit uh, left field with this one and pick True Romance. Great film. An original script by Quentin Tantino, it was actually, I believe, his first script. He wrote that in Reservoir Dogs but he couldn't direct both of them because he was new to the business. He gave both scripts to Tony Scott and said, pick one. Tony Scott picked True Romance, Tantino was you know. Director the Our dogs and the rest is history i love this film i think it's great to it tells the story uh clarence worley played by christian slater who falls in love with a cold girl trisha archette the name of alabama very cold girl name they fall in love and will try to get her out of her quote-unquote contract with her pimp he ends up accidentally stealing money from the mob This leads up to, in my opinion, which is one of the greatest scenes ever in cinema with Christopher Walken and Dennis Hopper. Christopher Walken plays the gangster who's representing the mob boss who Christian Slater has stolen from. Dennis Hopper is Christian's old da, who's just basically a retired cop loving his wee trailer with his dog. I don't know what Tarantino's got with people living in in trailers with dogs, but he seems to like this theme. Yeah. And basically, it's just the two of them trying their best to kind of, like, outact each other in a really respectful, like, dueling kind of way. And the script, to be honest, is dated a little. There's a lot of racial language in it. And it does feel sure. a little kind of cringy and a bit kind of uncomfortable. The scene itself, though, and the dialogue in general and the act is just absolutely incredible. You know it's only going to end one way. It can't. However, you just can't take your eyes off of it. And what are you laughing at? No, nothing.
1: No, I'm just agreeing with you.
2: Oh, I thought you we were gonna make a, a dick joke or something there. <laughs> and I was, I was trying my best to like think what the sense? I said.
0: I didn't say anything, penis.
2: Kind <laughs> of hard to take my eyes off it. <laughs> <I'm sticking. laughs>
0: and it's
2: like, yeah, that's what my wife says. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just the, the scene just from... I mean, and Christopher Walken is only in this film for one scene and he steals the entire film. Oh, I
0: know, I love Christopher
2: Walken. You know, and it's like that kind of opening bit he says when, like, Dennis Hopper's like, who are you? And he's like, I'm the Antichrist. <laughs> and when you meet Satan Peter at the gates of heaven, you'll tell him you have never seen the personification of true evil, like the man who put you there type thing, and you're just like, what the <laughs> hell kind of opening line is that? It's a line that
0: only Christopher Walken could get away with.
2: If Christopher Walken's plan interrogating me and that's his opening line, I'm telling him anything. <laughs> Dennis Hopper's so to protect his son and he's just basically, he knows how this is going to end as well. So he starts trying to just kind of like mess with his head a little. And the entire scene, oh, it's just absolutely outstanding. It's incredible. It's fantastic. Any superlative you want to use doesn't do it justice. Just watch it for this bit alone. And it features a young James Gandolfini. Excellent film, great cast. He's got Brad Pitts also in this, in a cameo. Is he? Yeah, he plays Floyd, the stoner who kind of hangs up the couch.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, I remember that now.
2: Val Kilmer's also in it as Elvis, but the Elvis's estate wouldn't give Tony Scott any permission to use like Elvis yeah. at all, so you always only see him and like bloody out of focus shots, and in the credits he's even called mental. <laughs> he's not quite Elvis
1: uh, Val Kilmer okay. spent the rest of his career looking blurry and out of shot ever since <laughs> really hasn't
0: he that is so depressing do you know Val Kilmer one of my first, first crushes I remember going to see Batman and just thinking oh my god he is the best thing to ever happen to cinema and now look at him
1: I, I think he'll sort of self out for Top Gun 2 yeah I
2: don't know if I see him uh, playing volleyball on the beach it's <laughs>
0: It is kind it of feels like Tom Cruise maybe, I don't know, kissed him at one point and sucked all the youth out of him. that's what happened. <laughs> that's <laughs> what <laughs> disclaimer, I'm right. not saying that Tom Cruise is gay. <laughs> no, I thought we were going
2: into the fact that he was going to get a vampire. Yeah, I thought, I thought yeah. <laughs> you know, Tom Cruise basically just kind of like, I keep my youthful looks by sucking the life out of one of the victims. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's <laughs> why he's always casting himself against younger, younger uh, female leads.
0: It's it. like get, get kissing scene in there. Get
2: a kissing scene in there. <laughs> oh, maybe we should pick. Oh, and actually, another little bit about that. Sure. Tantino said that that scene was the best thing he had ever written up until the opening of *Inglorious Bastards*. Yes. Nice little about linkage for you. Yeah. You know, Doing research on this podcast. Don't let anybody tell you different. Than film. <laughs> I
0: know it might sound like we're winging it, but we actually know what we're talking about. Something. <laughs> Mostly, it's Especially about Dick, in Fairness. Yeah.
2: John has his, uh, his notes written in that carton of milk.
0: <laughs> Sorry, it's just, I, I know it's a weird thing to observe. I've just never, uh, it's been ages since I've seen somebody drink directly from
2: a cup. Oh, I noticed it as well. The first time I picked it up, I thought,
0: is he drinking a carton of milk?
2: <laughs> I don't know
0: why it's so funny. I don't know <laughs> why either. Know. Mm. I'm, I'm,
2: I'm kind, kind struggling of struggling.
0: With so <laughs> <laughs> it's like you probably have a list on your fridge that's like <laughs> got to get some vitamin C and calcium. <laughs> 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 oh god! Right, second pick for me. Serious face on. Stop laughing at John drinking milk. Um, it's probably one of the most I would say iconic scenes in cinema. Like it's a cult classic. It's the dance scene in Pulp Fiction. And um, what I love about this is, <laughs> at first, when Emma Thurman's character says, you know, you promised you would take me out and we could do whatever I want and I want to dance and I want to win, John Travolta genuinely does look scared, like he does not want to participate in this. Um, and obviously it has the sort of famous piece of music over it, You Never Can Tell by Chuck Berry, I think. Um, And the dancing's amazing, like obviously they just start off kind of shuffling or whatever but then John Travolta starts pointing the toes and there's like a lot of swimming action going on and, you know, peace signs and all that and it's just, it's a really bizarre scene in the context of that film which is obviously kind of super violent and about, you know, it's not a it's not a romantic film, it's not a comedy and it's certainly not about like, you know, a night out. I love it. There's something sort of deeply captivating about it and it does kind of start off, I I think, with John Travolta looking a little bit unsure of himself, but, you know, even though he had obviously been dancing in like Grease and Saturday Night Fever, but the more he gets into it and gets into the swing of things, it's just like, these are just two people having a really good time despite the sort of circumstances whatever Going on around them um and it's something that's kind of copied a lot um you know for Halloween costumes or sort of homages to that particular film but it's definitely a sort of cult classic the film itself and that scene is definitely a standout um within the rest of the film and I think is that Emma Thurman's first uh film with Quentin Tarantino is that right
1: yeah, I think yeah.
0: It was, yeah. um and she's obviously incredible in it um and I think that's probably the last decent film I've seen John Travolta in as well. So I just, I just like it. It's just odd in the middle of, of that film. But it just there's something about it that just makes me laugh and makes me actually want to get up and join in.
2: How dare you disrespect Face Off?
0: Oh my god, we were talking about this in work the other day. I found these Nick Cage scatter cushions, right? And it's like glitter, sequins or whatever. And then you rub the sequins up and underneath there's just Nick Cage staring at you. It's like, who would want this for their bed or their couch?
2: I Nuts. would. Although I thought you were going to say you'd rub a sequel and John Travolta's face appeared. and went, that's absolute genius.
0: <laughs> that would have been more clever. We should trademark that now.
2: For mine, I'm going to choose uh,
1: a scene from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, it's been described as the, the actor prepares scene. Basically, the background to it is Rick Dalton is on Uh, a pilot for uh, a new western called Lancer where again he's playing the the bad guy who's destined to die in the third act. He's turned up at set drunk or hung over and he's just not uh, totally with it. He has done his preparation as uh, we had seen earlier on Andy had a bit of a mixed morning on set. He forgot a couple of lines and caused a few problems for them. Uh, So after that, he goes back to his trailer, uh, basically threatens himself with death. (laughs) He threatens to blow his own brains out. You know, he's speaking to himself in the mirror and he says, if you don't get this right, I'm going to blow your brains out tonight, which is actually really funny. But uh, from there, uh, because it's lunchtime, and because he's been made up as the, the bad guy with the Zapata moustache and everything, he can't really eat lunch. So he sits down to to read his book, which is one of these pulp Western books. And he's sitting be- beside this little 11-year-old girl. Um, and they strike up a conversation. And she starts asking him about, oh, what are you reading? You know, she's reading uh, a biography of Walt Disney. And it's this big, massive book. And he's reading this uh, just pulp novel, one of these sort of dime store novels that you get. Uh, and she says, oh, what's that about? And he starts describing the book and he's talking about how it's a, a Rodo rider who was uh, at the top of his game and everything was going well. And then he he ended up with spinal injuries and he's struggling. And about halfway through uh, the uh, the description of this, he starts to realise that this is his life. This is what he... Uh, What he has become, it's actually mirroring him and he starts to well up and he starts to cry and you're going, oh my God, oh, that's... that's And he's starting bubbling in front of this 11 year old girl and it's just, it's heartbreaking because you know that he can do it. You know that he he is like a consummate actor, but uh, through the choices he's made over the past decade, the fact that he was a lead in a TV show and he just decided, I want to be an actor now. I want to be a proper actor, proper uh, film actor. So he chucked it after two seasons or he made the third season hell for everybody. Um, And because of that, this is the situation he finds himself in a decade later. And it's just the realization that his life has become a a wee bit of a joke. And the way that DiCaprio plays that scene is just absolutely amazing. He's sitting there totally decked out Mm -hmm. as a bad guy. as I say with the the long hair and the the wide-brimmed hat and he's just sitting there bubbling and this 11-year-old girl starts comforting him. It's just absolutely amazing. I like the fact that there's no camera. You don't actually see the 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 setup uh, with the the crew and everything when they're they're filming this it is actually as if they they're filming it for real you know it's mm-hmm. like a, an actual scene that you're seeing so you're you're not seeing like any of the technicians in the background or anything like that so it adds to the sort of drama of the moment uh, while they're doing that and you only really notice it when the camera actually pans around behind the Tim- Timothy Timothy elephant character and he fluffs a line and it's then so, all right, stop and reset and the camera gets pushed back and all that. It's just, it's very well done. And of course, it was kind of a toss up between that scene and the scene after. Because the scene like after the that. Hamlet. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh. That made that...
0: me absolutely piss myself he's sitting there going you know give me what was it, evil hamlet give me sexy hamlet keep it going dicaprio's sitting in the chair and you can see the strain on his face like struggling to portray whatever emotion whatever the fuck sexy hamlet means (laughs) he's just sitting there like straining the vein popping out of his head yeah no it's brilliant it's brilliant good choice
2: very good choice yeah i'm gonna go back to cowbell Oren Ishii's backstory which is done in glorious Japanese anime nice this scene took me entirely by surprise when I was watching Kill Bill sitting in the cinema, really enjoying it and you know again getting backstories for all the different villains and stuff, Mm -hmm. that the bride's going through our list to try and kill, and we get to Oren Ishii and her backstory is told in anime and it just threw me off guard And for the next few minutes, I was just so invested in this that I forgot I was watching a live-action film. And this was just a a scene. It's so directed. It's so beautifully animated. It was did by the production company, um, Production IG, and they were the studio behind Ghost in the Shell. Very iconic anime, which Tarantino was a big fan of. And animation producer Katsuje Morishita said apparently there was four sequences in this and it took and now it took him a, a whole year in this production but they're saying if they actually did that in a live action the blood alone would have been seven figures so people were always kind of like why did they have this scene in anime why? It, it, it does and interesting fact, it doesn't jar from the rest of the film it just seamlessly goes into it and you get so invested in it and it cuts back to Uma Thurman's character the bride try to work with a big toe I, again i thought i, I totally got lost i was totally lost in that that i could have easily just watched that as a film absolutely absolutely amazing
0: i think that's the thing with tarantino he seems to get away with like what i would almost call sketches like you don't really go in expecting just one plot to go from a to b you do kind of expect curveballs and different style, like almost like kind of different genres sort of merged into to one. I think you're sort of willing to suspend your disbelief kind of more with him than sort of any other director.
2: Hmm. Yeah, because he can he can pull it off.
0: mm mm-hmm. Oh yeah, it's always very stylish. Yeah. You know,
2: um. Yeah, I say just that that scene for me is one of the greatest scenes in any films, and it, it's. I was going to pick the House of the Blue Leaves John because that was the mm-hmm. first thing I thought of when I thought to kill Bill and then that just popped into my head and I went no no that's that made me want to go back that makes me want to go back and watch the film alone just to see that scene Yeah, absolutely and the beautiful thing about it as well you could watch it just you could look up on YouTube skip to it on your DVD and just watch it on its own mm-hmm. it's an isolated story
1: yeah well that's what Mary was saying about a lot of uh, Tarantino's work you could watch just scenes or elements of films quite easily without having to watch anything they're almost like short films uh, mm-hmm. within a sort of bigger narrative but they can be they can be totally standalone uh, which really works works for me anyway
0: um so my last pick is not a particularly serious one but Every time I think of this scene, it just makes me gut myself. And it's the clan gathering from Chango Unchained when they're planning their raid. So, obviously, you know, the scene, the film itself is is quite tense. There's a lot of, uh, you know, racist uh, language. And it's just one of those films, again, where I feel like you can almost like smell the, the sweat. What is it about Southern films? It's all, you know, you can really sort of taste the, the chewing tobacco. But this scene just makes me gut myself because, you know, here's all these clan members or whatever on their horses. They've got their sort of, you know, burning um, rags at the side and they're planning this big raid and they're talking about, you know, killing people. And what they're, they go into description about what they're going to do to these uh, specific people And then, about halfway through, (laughs) they try to pull their hoods over their heads, and they're like, oh, I can't see and the eye holes are sitting like sort of down where their (laughs) their mouths are and they're like well who gave us these and somebody's wife is getting the blame for it and you know it's like well we can't go on this raid now because nobody can see and then somebody shouts but the horses can see and the horses are what's leading us it's like well I'm not going into this raid if I can't see and then it's like well do we do our hoods on or hoods off and it's like the whole point is we have to have our hoods on that's the intimidation and then they're like no we can just go with hoods off and then there's all these you know clan members, whatever, pulling these ridiculous hoods over their heads with eye holes, they're like, you know, one is actually maybe at their eye, but the other one's at their lips. And whoever, I can't remember the character's name, but whoever the guy is whose wife has made it was like, well, fuck all of y'all, and next time you can bring your own pillowcases. <laughs> cases. And he just sort of saunters off in his horse. Um... And it's, do you know what? It's not even the best scene in that film, but it just makes me laugh so much. I mean, it's kind of what Spike Lee did in, in, in Black Klansman, to a certain extent. It's sort of pointing out the sort of ridiculousness of this um, organisation or whatever you want to call it, racial hate group. And that's where Tarantino sort of gets his, his fun in, I think, in that film. It's just this, you know, absolutely ridiculous. We've put our holes in the wrong places in the, in the pillowcases and it's just making not light of the situation, but very much sort of taking the piss out of the people who hold these particular beliefs. It's not particularly serious, it's not going to win any awards, but it just just makes me laugh.
2: It's like, no, no, they're very evil men, but look at the state of them.
0: Yeah, Yeah, definitely.
2: When you think about it, you know that's absolutely ridiculous. and They should be laughed at, they should be mocked.
0: Uh huh. Um, but as I say, it's just the sort of the 10 living it for me is when the, the guy rides off and he's like, you know, next time me and my wife will just make our own, or whatever. It's just it's so ridiculous and it is it's inviting you to laugh at these people, but not to think, oh, they're just harmless. Look at them; they can't even get the pillowcases right. It's you know, look at these people. You know, these are the people that want to be in charge of things, sort of thing. You should be worried.
2: I was flying in New York on holiday. No and...
0: brag, but okay.
2: Yeah, you know, and you had your kind of like in-flight like films and things like that, and I can't remember what I watched. I think I watched Gangster Squad heading over, but the guy in front of me put on Django Unchained as the plane was about to land. I'm like, what is he hoping to see? And <laughs> <laughs> just like, how, I is mean, it's like quite a long film, me? I don't know you're going to get this in.
0: You've had lots of time to watch it up until now.
2: <laughs> I remember looking over my seat
0: and the credits popping up. I'm like,
2: oh, man.
1: My next pick is from Pulp Fiction. It's the Call the Wolf scene. Mm. Uh, Basically, Vincent and Jules are in a car. They accidentally blow the head off of a guy who's sitting in the back seat of the car. And they... (laughs) I'm I'm laughing, sorry. (laughs) I know. Well, that is quite funny, obviously. (laughs) Um, And they head to Jimmy's house, who Jimmy is a friend of Jules. And they turn up at his doorstep uh, about eight o'clock in the morning, uh, covered with blood and brains, and uh, a dead body in the back of the car. And uh, Jimmy is not best pleased to see them, despite the fact that he's given them real—he's uh, given them some of the gourmet coffee, not the rubbish stuff that uh, they, they kind of expected. So they call the Wolf. Now the Wolf is a fixer. Uh, he's played by Harvey Keitel he's the guy that you call when you want something done and you want something done quickly. So the wolf turns up um, and basically sets everything right, directs Jules and Vincent to uh, do the clean up while talking Jimmy down because uh, Jimmy's wife Bonnie is just about to appear back from uh, doing a night shift at the hospital and basically in double quick time he gets everything sorted and he looks effort loosely cool at the same time because he turns up in a dinner suit with a bow tie on as if he's just stepped out from like a christening or something uh, and you've got what to wonder How well,
0: many christens do you go to yeah <laughs> at eight
1: o'clock in the morning <laughs> uh, it's a it's one of these scenes it's probably as you say it's not the best scene in pulp fiction but it's a funny scene and uh, it just showed off uh, harvey keitel um, it's been kind of diminished a wee bit in the fact that he's done about a million and one adverts for uh, Direct Line Insurance with pretty much the same character, but it doesn't take away from the original at all. I, I still think it's one of the standout scenes from that movie.
0: Yeah, he's so classy, even though what he's doing is like the dirty work he is. He's super classy as he does it.
2: Unflappable, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's great, but it's totally ruined for me with those direct line adverts. <laughs>
0: I know, almost as bad as Al Pacino's Dunkin' Donuts adverts. Oh, I, I must admit, when he showed up in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, my first thought was, how the fuck did you get this gig? Because you are literally selling donuts now, pal. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Interesting enough, a wee bit of trivia, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Do you know Charles Manson once tried, once approached Steve McQueen with a script? Basically, uh, after an altercation, uh, McQueen broke his nose. Good for Steve McQueen. <laughs> it's like, it's been about Charles Manson's Hitler moment. You know what, you can't push over the edge. Like, we don't like your paintings. Oh, well, what day next was my backup plan. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, because when um, Manson turns up at the house the first time, he's asking for Dennis. Mm-hmm. And Dennis is actually Dennis Wilson from the Beach Boys, mm-hmm. because he was hanging about with him and he wanted him to help with his music career as well. Yeah. So it all kind of ties in.
0: So... Are we saying that you know a sort of failed artist? Obviously, Hitler couldn't paint, and Manson could neither write nor sing. That we should be worried about these guys because they're going to start.
2: <laughs> I'm telling this, you, this book I'm publishing better do well. Cause <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's why I was alluding to.
2: <laughs> Buy my book or else.
1: <laughs>
0: Simmy. Another her-
1: another we fumble brag there from Simmy, yeah. I know. But, oh, yeah. I, know. By, by, by the, I wrote a book, but you know, I don't
0: know how good it's gonna be. Sure, while, while I was on a flight to New York, you know, visiting <laughs> my agent, I just jotted out a novel. Sure,
2: yeah. Uh, excuse me, his diamond shoes are gonna be tight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I I'm not even really gonna say too much about my final scene because there isn't really much to say about it apart from it's one of the most iconic and legendary scenes in cinema the opening credit sequence, or it's not the opening scene of Reservoir Dogs, the opening scene is obviously them sitting in the diner, the infamous Mr Pink and the tipping conversation, but after that we just basically have them all walking down the streets, immaculate black and suits with a kind of white shirt and the black tie, the shades on, little green bag playing, slow motion, It's it's just brilliant, absolutely brilliant, and it's just so effortlessly cool it's been it's been for, for tarantino who does the reputation for copying a lot of stuff and he does copy a lot of stuff for reservoir dogs that's fair enough this scene is been tried so many times since and it's just this is this is one of the most coolest scenes ever for me just the way they walk the music works it, who doesn't have a poster who didn't have a poster of that shot on the wall at some point i have a framed picture of it i'm looking at it just now you know, it's just brilliant. Absolutely brilliant.
0: And... We, we try to look that cool in our scramble nights out, but
2: obviously... Yeah, we do look that cool on our heads, to be fair. That's, <laughs> yeah. how, we, that's how we look in our, in our minds. How would
0: Tarantino film us? There's at least a foot between me and you, Simmy, and then probably another foot between you and John. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have to pan up.
2: <laughs> We're just Russian dolls, basically. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's it was kind of it was,
0: it's
2: a bit of a
1: statement, really, wasn't it, that yeah, uh, the opening yeah. titles was like, "I've arrived." You know, take notice of me because, like, yeah. say so the, the the opening scene was good, but it wasn't anything that kind of made that sort of statement. But then, when you see them walking, you think, "All right, yeah." The credit sequence definitely,
0: is definitely yeah. it's more to do with Tarantino uh, as opposed to the characters. I think that was him sort of saying this is me and this is my sort of style of cinema, kind of sw- that little bit of swag about it. And I know he, he probably does get a bit of a bum rap for copying, but I think it's, I genuinely think he just loves cinema so much that everything he does is in some way a homage or whatever. I don't ever think of it as outright copying. Yeah, that, he, it's because he has his own style.
2: He's not plagiarising to try and copy something, and pass it off on his own. He's basically mm-hmm. saying, I love this and I want to show you. You haven't seen this film that I love, i to so mm-hmm. show you my love for it we also took to uh, social media and asked you about your top three movie scram- uh, top three movie scramble scenes yes what's your top three movie scramble moments
0: john getting his kit off
2: this is basically where the eagle has landed um, <laughs> do you want to start on... that again
0: sammy no i'm uh, um, <laughs>
2: podcast i'm no longer going to be about movies they're going to be about us so yeah that's just how we're going to roll from now on we did ask you your top three Quentin Tarantino moments as we shared ours. We had a couple of responses from Twitter at Rufio, as in Rufio from Hook. He said, "Reservoir Dogs with no second thought. Even twenty-five years plus from its release, I instantly think of it. I hear a song from—I instantly think of it when I hear a song from the soundtrack. Amazing movie." We also have uh, Bob Steele at Bob Steele fifty-five. All three of his favorite Tarantino moments are from the same film. Pulp Fiction, number one, Jules, we will strike down upon the knee with furious vengeance speech. funny enough, they need to pick that, that's a very, very mm. good scene. He also had the entire Winston Wolf scene, the same as you, John, and possibly his favourite quote in film history from Jules, this morning airs some chilly shit. Can't <laughs> <laughs> kind of argue with that. <laughs> yeah, thanks for your suggestions, I do appreciate the fact that I sent those messages out out two minutes before the podcast started so if you are sending them in after this point in time it's not getting read out sorry
0: <laughs> like we said earlier winging it
2: <laughs> it's how we roll i think that wraps up our tarantino loving and um, for a guy that let's be honest does get a bit of a bad rap these days and these kind of more modern times i'm not saying all of it's not necessarily unjustified You still a Absolutely drawing director, and that's not going to change.
0: I think a guy just likes feet. Just leave him alone. He
2: does like feet. I did hear a funny thing the other day, actually. I was listening to a movie podcast. Sorry, guys, I was cheating on you. And <laughs> Tommy from Dusk Till Dawn, and I was saying how it's funny when you see Tarantino in the vampire makeup.
0: It mm-hmm.
2: looks how Tarantino looks now. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: Oh, that's funny. I'm Sharon Tate. I'm in the movie. You're in this? That's me. I play Miss Carlson, the klutz.
2: (laughs) So what's in the news? What's happening these days?
0: Well, there's been sort of two big announcements this week, hasn't there? So there's been the announcement of the title of the new Bond film, which of course is No Time to Die. Um, And there's also been the conscious uncoupling of Spider-Man and Disney or Marvel, whatever, as well. So that's been the two, well, I think that's been the sort of two biggest kind of movie-related news items this week.
2: I mean, with regards to the Spider-Man Disney thing, I'm not buying it. I find there's probably, I don't want to reach an agreement. There's too much money on the table.
0: Sure. Part of me feels like it's been a sort of crude play by Sony to go, do you know what, we'll give them the character for a couple of films, we'll build up enough of a following and then we'll just take it back because people will come and see the films regardless. But actually, no, I think for all that comic book movies get a bit of a hard time for maybe not being the most sort of, I don't know, movies to make you think or whatever. I think comic book fans are really quite discerning. And when things are shit, they certainly let people know things will just tank and I think that's a, a risk that Sony can't afford to take, especially after Venom didn't do so well. Even though I did really like that film.
1: Well, I I don't think they will. I think Sony will go their own way because okay. even though the the uh, Amazing Spider-Man one and two were not well received, they still made something like eight hundred thousand, nine hundred thousand dollars. So they were they were big movies, that's but not um,
0: that's not a lot, John. Yeah, that's what I was thinking.
1: It's 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 more than most make. Obviously, they are thousand dollars. Sorry, eight hundred billion
0: dollars. I was thinking, like, fuck! I think I can make a film yeah, and that's, make eight hundred thousand dollars. Probably, that cost was hard with the catering bill. To make.
1: Yeah. So, Jesus yeah, so they were they were not far off of a billion yeah. for both of those. Sure, and yet they had they felt that over, all right, they, they felt that uh, they didn't do well enough two uh, weren't continuing the way they were going on their own so they obviously teamed up with Marvel but apparently they, there's information that's come out about the deal that they, they had struck part of the deal Marvel got all the monies from MCU films that Spider-Man was in and they got 5% of the Spider-Man Sony films so Do obviously
0: 5 or 50?
1: 5 <laughs> and they were renegotiating to get 50% They wanted a 50-50 split, basically, because they've basically built up the the, the IP now as well for the whole Spider-Man universe again. Made it more popular than ever, arguably, and they're obviously wanting more cash. Obviously, Disney need the cash, you know. Sure. Yeah. They spent yeah. what seventy one billion in Fox, so they're obviously want to get a wee bit of money back from that. Yeah, so I'm you, you can understand sexy. why they, they want to hold on to the properties and they want to make them popular. But yeah, I you're probably right, Sammy. I think they, they may get back together at some point, but there'll be a bit of a standoff for a while. Okay. But it's interesting that um, Spider Man fe- doesn't feature in Phase Four at all in any of the films.
0: I would like to see where this goes. You know, Marvel got it really right with Tom Holland. You know, the casting and stuff like that and the way that Spider-Man was portrayed. I think to sort of take that back now is only going to... Oh, it's just going to end in disaster and I'm quite sure that it's going to be a sort of, you know, peacocking competition between um, Sony and Disney or Sony and Marvel, whatever you want to call it. But ultimately, you know, Marvel were onto a good thing there. It would be stupid of Sony to to try and claw somehow claw this back for themselves it's not going to work out
2: yeah it's basically there's no way sony are gonna to try and remove it for that universe though completely it's gonna be a bit ballsy in sony's part
0: and you know they're just gonna fuck it up
2: yes that's the thing i
1: think marvel kind of hold all the cards as well because of Sony obviously ultimately say, no, you're not getting them, they'll say, well, fair enough, well, we'll just do an X-Men film, and we'll do a Fantastic Four film, and see the next time there's a Spider-Man film, our film about two weeks before yours. Embarrass yourself like that in front of all the goddamn
2: people! I think we've solved the world's rights when it comes to Crinton, Tantino, and Sony. People really should hire us to... his advisors.
0: Yep, absolutely.
2: Well, I wouldn't have had John to do uh, my finances, mind you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, mate. So, we're done then? I think we're done. I'd like to thank everybody for tuning in, downloading this, streaming this, however you get your Movie Scramble fix. You can always contact us at Movie Scramble on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And John, you have a new email address, I believe.
1: Yes, uh, you can now get in touch with us at podcast at moviescramble.co.uk. If you have any thoughts about the podcast or uh, anything that you think we should cover, uh, just get in touch, please. It would be it would be nice to hear from people and uh, hear your opinions on what we're actually doing. It
0: we accepts. also accept dick pics of all shapes and sizes, so...
2: Yeah. <laughs> direct to mary please yeah i think mary, you just you, you do realize that's going to happen now yeah it's open season now
0: i mean in fairness for the three people that listen to is one of whom is me um one of whom is probably my colleague at work he's not likely to you know start taking pictures of his dick or if he is that's fine it's just going to make the coffee in the morning a little bit weird <laughs>
2: <laughs> well if that's all from you guys that's all from me thanks very much i enjoyed myself Peace
0: out. Bye. Hey, you're Rick fucking Dalton. Don't you forget it.